oh, now I understand why houses have walls and, and rooms have walls. You know, the real sort of pendulum swinging back saying, yeah, I need spaces, yeah. I need compartments, I need, you know, closed yeah. off areas. Well, think about college dorms, then. That, oh. that, those are horrible. I, I, I shudder to think. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let's, let's kind of formally start the, sure. uh, the podcast. Yeah. Um, welcome to season two of the Vitruvian Man podcast. Uh, it's great to be back. My name is Vinamur Kasana. I'm your host. Um, last, last time we had the privilege of having some students who talked about their various interests in different fields in the arts, sciences, and so on. But this semester we're doing something different. We're bringing in actual professors, professors who've mentored me, professors who've helped me explore different areas of academia and communications and, and thinking. So without much further ado, I would like to bring and welcome um, esteemed professor Mr. Michael Dowding, who's a master lecturer at Boston University, and he's been working in writing and advertising and public relations for about 25 years. Uh, a distinguished teacher, he started and established uh, Wordscape Communications, which was a freela freelance uh, writing consultancy dedicated to copywriting and public relations. And beyond that, he's also served as the Publicity Club of New England's president. Um, and he's also been a freelance contributor to the Boston Globe, funny enough, because we were just talking about the article. So yeah. that, that's something that's close to your heart. Yeah. Do you read that every single day? Uh, you know, I, I think I, I, I read something from the Globe, I'm sure, every day. I don't, I don't ever, ever advocate reading it cover to cover. I think that's, yeah. you know, just not the way I would ever recommend consuming information yeah. or news. But um, I did freelancing for the Globe. Uh, the bulk of it was probably from... Uh, 86 or 87 until about 95 you know about 10 or 12 years and uh i uh covered uh pop music uh, interesting that's yeah. why you made us write those uh music <laughs> reviews in class so so exactly. interesting context for yeah. the listeners and the viewers yeah. um professor doubting made us write a music review and the only requirement was that we engage with the album yeah. on our own individually without consulting anything, anything online. Yeah. The only exception would that to me would be if you were listening to a vinyl, you could read the back, yeah. but that's about it. Or you could listen to it on Spotify, but don't read. But yeah, don't read. And, <laughs> yeah. and if you wanted to find information about who was in the track, you would have to email Professor Dowding, and then he would do the internet research for you and then bring it back. Keep your opinions clean. Keep your mind co uncorrupted by anyone else's thoughts or opinions on the. the, I, uh, the yeah, the yeah. It's. I mean, it was a great strategy because mm -hmm. I put that that special article on my website as a portfolio, oh, good, and I good. showed it to another professor. He was like, "This is brilliant," good. and I'm like, "Yeah, well, because I wasn't distracted." <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. But um, you know, you've been you've been teaching writing and PR courses at BU. Um, and I certainly had the privilege of, you know, having my mind changed about what writing means because I came in as this sort of, oh, I'm a writer who knows complex words and abstract things. And let, here's seven things that I can talk about writing and blah, blah, blah. And suddenly Professor Dowding is like, it's time to murder your darlings. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is horrible. You're saying. I never said that word. Never. Well, <laughs> sorry no. for, I mean, I'm, I'm misquoting you, but that's that's the experience that. Well, I'm sure that's how it feels. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's sure like, it's like it I'm, I'm, I'm the benevolent sword that's going to cut through <laughs> all your um, things, that all the things that you value. And the, the result of that was I became so certain and precise with my words. This is a good thing. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, could you talk more about how writing is, you know, different from the writing that people tend to do? Sure. Communication writing, especially. Uh, and to anyone out there who's listening, first off, I'm very excited to be here, Benami. This is yeah. This is the greatest thing. And I, I, am I a season premiere episode? Yes. Oh, my God. All right. I am <laughs> far more stoked than I was before. Hell, yeah. Um, no, I. It, so any of your listeners uh, would know that if they've taken my class that I always have to explain to them that, you know, you're a student in the College of Communication. I, I, I'm freely going to admit that you're a very good writer. That's how you got here. Um, but what makes the class, a, I think, a bit of a challenge is that I ask them to sort of walk away from the tools that they've used to become successful to that point. So everybody walks into my class and they are pretty darn good at, you know, cranking out a, a sociology term paper yeah. or a, a psychology yeah. essay. And they've mastered, in many instances, the academic voice. Well, it turns out that when you, you know, get into media writing, that's not what we want. And, you know, the arts review that you mentioned a minute ago is a mm. good example because, you know, uh, so many uh, of my students are used to writing critiques or analyses about, you know, an, you know, a short story or a book or something. And they use that voice and they take that approach. And that's not what we want. You know, we want something that's entertaining and engaging and you know, pleasant to read and not just sounding stiff and formal. So mm. it, it's it's funny, but, you know, a lot of students have initially, initially will have trouble moving from that academic voice into a media voice. And mm. it's very difficult because I, I'm lit almost literally asking them to let go of the things that made them successful and yeah. sort of take a blind faith walk with me through the semester so that when we get to the end, mm. You're going to have a new set of tools. Yes, you're still a great composer of words, but you've got to use a completely different approach to, to master this media stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because in academic writing, uh, the template is just so firm. Yeah. It's, it's that, okay, well, you have a thesis statement in the paper. And then after the thesis statement, you have three points mm -hmm. that, that support that. Yeah. And then you have maybe one point saying, well, the uh, counter argument is bad. Yeah. And in the end, you have a conclusion summarizing the points. Yep. It's almost like there's a math to writing. Mm -hmm. And once, especially if you're someone who's logical and rational, it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I figured out the math. Yeah. What you can then do is you can, the first sentence can be a neat rephrasing of your thesis statement yeah. or the first supporting point. The rest of it can be absolutely garbage. Yeah. And because the professor, you know, not to say that that's, that's exactly what happens, but because we're so used to seeing, is he or she rephrasing the point that he made? Well, yes, then let's give him some points. Yeah. And that sort of takes away the responsibility of actually trying to engage with, with the arguments fully, yeah. you know? Absolutely true. It's difficult when you've been, again, not only spending, you know, years and years of your life mastering that structure and format. And I find, by the way, that's particularly true with my international students, mm. even more than my, my U.S. students. But when you've been mastering that and you've, you know, really nailed it and you've been rewarded for it, and now I'm saying, what are you doing? Don't do that. And it, mm. it can be very unsettling, I think, yeah. to students, and that's understandable. So, so as as for um, you know, finding your voice in in media writing, yeah. because that's something that that is still like an ambiguous term for um, I mean, for most of our listeners and stuff, because it's like yeah. people think of writing as a broad thing. It's like, oh, I write my thoughts out, yeah. or I write my opinion about something. Right. How how is media writing? different from not just academic writing, but the whole idea of writing as a whole? I think there's a, an increasing emphasis on brevity okay. 
in media writing, you know, the, the, the footprints in the, in the holes are smaller and smaller. You know, mm. I, I find in my uh, freelance practice, you know, somebody would ask me to write a, a lengthy 2,500 word paper about, you know, some technical topic. Mm. Now, you know, they just want the word counts shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, you know, if I'm sending um, a, a camp, um, an email campaign mm. to, you know, for a client, you know, they might have they, 90 words, you know, maybe 95 words, and that's it. And really? It's, and it's highly structured. You know, so you talk about your structure with, you know, your thesis statement and supporting points. Hmm. They've got something that says, okay, we want, you know, 70 words here, 15 words here, 10 words here. Wow. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's difficult for me because, uh, you know, I have so much that I want to, like my students, I have so much yeah. I want to say and I don't have room to say it. And yeah. uh, so that's been a challenge for me to sort of adjust to. Right. Um, well, then th that brings me to my next uh, question to you is that one thing that I noticed with, uh, you know, when, when I was uh, attempting to be successful at your class <laughs> was, uh, was that you had to keep in mind that this is a brand yeah. and that this brand has a set of principles, a set of uh, a vision that it sort of puts out in the public, but it also has a voice. Mm -hmm. So you have to keep all of those things in mind and say sure. that I'm writing from that angle yeah. as opposed to this is me, Vinamra, and here's my thoughts. And that's it. I'm glad you brought that up, Vinamra, because yeah. that's exactly sort of what I, I think one of the cardinal principles of media writing is, is you're writing most often, I certainly am, you know, writing for mm -hmm. someone else's voice. Yeah. You know, you're writing to, to help somebody else communicate a message to a third party. And so you've got to do a great job of sort of, uh, you know, getting inside their head and, and sort mm -hmm. of understanding what they want to say and and helping them find the right way to say it, how to say it. Mm. Um, you know, in academic writing or, or, you know, just many other forms of writing, you're writing for yourself in your yeah. own voice. And, and you don't get that luxury, I think, a lot of times in media writing. You've got to, yeah. you're doing it for hire, you're doing it for somebody else. It's, it's, it's commercial-based work yeah. as opposed to, you know, the memoirs of what I'd like to tell you about myself. <laughs> well, talking about memoirs, let's, let's yeah. go down memory lane right, right now. Sure. Yeah, um, I wanted to talk to you about, so, I mean, um, you're from uh, here in Massachusetts? Yes, I am. Born and raised in Massachusetts. Okay. So um, what is it that sort of compelled you to take this path of the hmm. writer? Huh. It, I, that's a fun question. Um, I can tell you because I can tell you exactly how it happened. It, okay. it, it's weird, but it's, it's how it happened. Eighth grade. Uh, okay. I was, you know, uh, taking an English class in eighth grade hmm. and my teacher assigned us a term paper. You had to pick an American author and do a term. And this was literally, you know, uh, in eighth grade, teaching you a, a term paper skill that you would use throughout high school and college. So it, was, yeah. you know, it had a very important purpose to it. And I chose Robert Frost. And I can still remember, you know, reading the poems and writing, you know, the index cards and building the outline and writing the, the, the term paper. Hmm. And I, I, I may have some writing talent. What I don't have is typing talent. So... I can remember, you know, what was I, 13 years old, and my mother helping me type up the paper, mm -hmm. uh, which fortunately was not disallowed. You know, that was okay, mm -hmm. that was okay as far as the teacher was concerned. And um, she, I remember, you know, she was finishing the typing, and she just turned to me and said, you know, you're pretty good at writing. This is really good. Yeah. And I, I would largely tell you that, yeah, I thought maybe I'll do that for a living. You know, it was sort of what I would do. And... So uh, I, I went to college and I majored in English because that seemed like a good idea. Mm. And so I did. And uh, my first two years, you know, I, I studied Shakespeare. And, you know, and then a couple of years later, I had to do a couple semesters of romantic poetry <coughs> and, you know, all these kinds of fun things. 
Um, and never really thought about it. I just knew that I liked to do it. And it kind of came, not easily to me, but it came to me a little more easily than it does to other people. Hmm. And I had no idea what I was going to do with it, hmm. you know, from a, a career perspective. But then I, I had an internship uh, at a software company in their PR department. Hmm. And I was writing news releases. I was helping them write their annual report. And I was doing well. I liked it. And That's when uh, you said you would have to type the news releases on a typewriter. Oh, gosh, if yeah. You, if you made one single mistake, you would have to type the whole thing back. Uh, IBM Selectric 2. Yeah, <laughs> that was the IBM Selectric 2 typewriter. Um, we did have these little, um, I don't know what you'd call them, little sheets that if you had a, a misstrike, you could yeah. put it in there and pop it out. But, you know, yeah, it was you, you typed much more carefully in those days than you do now, that's for sure, mm. right? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I did that, and they asked me to stay on full-time mm. while I finished my education at night. Yeah. And so that's when I actually came to BU because I was mostly through my undergraduate degree, but uh, finished up at night at BU, finished my English degree <clears throat> here, hmm. and then um, continued on and figured maybe I'd directed to journalism. Hmm. And so uh, I got my graduate degree in journal, print journalism here at Com. Hmm. And uh, but me, that was a part-time basis. You know, I was yeah. sort of working in the world at the time, and gave it serious thought to actually maybe. Uh, you know, taking a career in journalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I actually had, you know, an interview for the Globe for a full-time position. I was a finalist, didn't get the job. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, in retrospect, that's just grand. It's fine with me. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm very happy with how things came out. But uh, continued with the PR career and worked with different companies. And then in, uh, I, I actually went back and got an MBA in finance because mm -hmm. I, you know, I knew Shakespeare and <laughs> Robert Frost, but <laughs> didn't know how economics or how to read, you know, a financial yeah. statement. And I wanted to sort of balance out that business side of my brain. Uh, then, you know, in 95, I decided to go out on my own and just start a, a freelance writing career. And I also started teaching here at BU back then yeah. on a part-time basis. So uh, I, it's funny because between my schooling and college years and teaching, I, I like to tell people I've been in a classroom on one side of the desk or other every year since 1967, except for three years since 1967, wow. I've been in a classroom every September. So you can't just, you can't wait to get in because they just beckon to you. It's like, Michael, come it, it, I always tell people Labor Day, September 1st feels like New Year's Day to me. Like that's when the, the, the year starts for me. And, and, you know, January 1st is more arbitrary, but September 1st feels like there's a real rollover effect <laughs> and there's a new year starting. That's so funny. I do want to pick your brain on uh, something you said. You said yeah. that I wanted to balance the other side of my brain out. Yeah. So a lot of what uh, this podcast is about is essentially whole brain thinking, you know, yeah. like the, the arts and the Good. sciences. So oftentimes, and this is something that literature majors tend to do, is like they tend to be heavily, and I, I because I was also fascinated with the, the classics, they tend to be heavily invested in always the abstract, mm -hmm. always these models of reality that have to do with characters and fiction and emotions, right? Sure. But then, you know, a degree in finance, which is so, like, left brain, which is so, like, or it's right brain, I don't know. I can never keep those straight either. Yeah, yeah, it's just so <laughs> complex. But that's so analytical, logical, and yeah. has to do with the real world. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question to you is, you know, why did you decide to make that switch? It's funny because... I was, you know, working in these software companies and uh, tech firms, and I was the writer guy, hmm. and it, plenty of work to do there. Because uh, fortunately, you know, there are not many people that understand computer software and 
writing that yeah. can write well. So I, I had a good niche to, to, to attack from a career perspective. But what I noticed was, you know, the guys that were getting promoted, they mm. had business degrees. Interesting. You know, and, and, and I realized, you know, when a business discussion would break out, you know, about accounts payable or, you know, our, our financial statements, our balance sheet, you know, I, could, I didn't, I, like, I, yeah. well, I mean, w- I wouldn't hold up my hands physically because I didn't want them to know I didn't know. I'd, I'd kind of do the, the nod, uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a good look. And then uh, I, I decided that, you know, maybe the way to get ahead would be to shore up this massive gap in my knowledge, which yeah. I, I didn't, I'd never taken a, a business course before. Yeah. And I had, you know, a graduate degree in journalism and, you know, it just seemed like a, a logical thing for me, and I was interested in it. Mm. So I went back to Suffolk and um, Suffolk University and uh, enrolled in their executive MBA program, which is a mm. Saturdays only deal. Yeah, I've, I've uh, wait staff at some of those at BU as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, and it's you know I was young. I was uh, you know probably in my early thirties and didn't have mm. kids, so mm. you know I could somehow find a way to do this, but it was exhausting. You're you're in class forty eight Saturdays a year. You know you got yeah. You know, once every eleven weeks, they'd give you a Saturday off in between terms, essentially, yeah. and it was, it was a great thing to complete, but it was really harrowing to go through at the time. Mm. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because some of the people that I met at that the executive M- MBA program at yeah. BU, they got so bored of seeing their classmates and they yeah. started coming and talking to me. Because <laughs> obviously, I, me as a waitstaff guy, had something yeah. more to offer. To the conversation. <laughs> they were like, look at this person. He's so detached. He's just serving his food. Let us see what is up with him. Yeah. You know? The good call on their part. <laughs> yeah. But um, so, you know, you've been teaching at BU uh, for so long. Yeah. What's what's the one thing that sort of still strikes you as either fascinating or quirky or weird about the students that come to your classes? You know, um, I guess sort of the, the commonality that I see, and, and this will sound schmaltzy and cheesy, and I don't care, is that um, <laughs> the students that that come into my class, they're just great kids. They really are, and and they're 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 bright, they're motivated, they want to learn stuff, and uh, by and large, I try to sort of tap into their energy. And and mm-hmm. and I try to have fun in these classes. You know, it's yeah. it's, Halloween. I, I yeah, Halloween. <laughs> we'll get to Halloween. That was a classic. Um, but we, you know, we, 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 we have a lot of fun, but we learn a lot. I I know yeah. that you know I work my students very hard. Um, there's a lot of That's assignments. That's the first thing on the syllabus. Yeah, this is this is going to be a hard class. That's exactly. What exactly. <laughs> what is it? It's like a forty-page syllabus, right? You yeah. Know? yeah. So we're not messing around here. I, and I kind of want to make sure that everybody knows what they're signing up for before they get neck deep in it. And, you know, every now and again, somebody like, "Mm, don't think I want to do that. And Mm -hmm. they bail out and that's fine. That's their right and privilege. But um, I think the commonality, the thing that always endures is just how much enjoyment and pleasure I get out of doing this work. Um, The the standard joke I always trot out with my classes is I do this for free, but don't tell them that, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because uh, it's so much fun. I just love being in the classroom and mm-hmm. just, you know, working with a bunch of young writers trying to get better. It's just yeah. a lot of fun. Talking about young writers trying to get better. Yeah. What, what is your advice to them? Because, you know, certainly and not everyone has had the privilege of going to Boston University and learning from you, you know, and yeah. then saying, OK, well, I've become a better writer thanks yeah. to yeah. Professor Dowding. So for someone who's listening and who's who says, you know, who thinks that they have something to say, but they don't know how to say it or articulate it exactly. Where should they start? Let's start even earlier than that. Let's mm. start with being a voracious reader. 
I, I think that the best writers are, by and large, the most voracious readers. Uh, it, it's probably one of the most underrated, undervalued ways to improve your writing. Yeah. And, you know, it's like being a musician, you know. Nobody, there's no musician that you can think of that says, oh, I hate concerts and albums. I hate listening to others. Like, yeah. I just want to work on my own. Like, no, you, you, you get engaged by reading other people's material. And it, yeah. it gets reflected in your own writing, whether it's, you know, you learn stuff that, you know, you end up using or you absorb some of their style sort of at a subconscious level. Mm. Um, but I think that's the most important thing. And then, you know, it, it, it does come down to, do you have something to say? Mm. And, and I, if you don't have something to say, step away because yeah. you, you won't say anything. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think it's important, you know, have something to say, master what you're going to talk about or write about so that you're, you know, have enough expertise to, to write about it knowledgeably and, mm. Uh, informatively and persuasively. Mm. So I, I think those are good starting points. <clears throat> it's interesting that you say that because one of the things you have us do in the class for the longest time yeah. is to get familiarized with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as an aspiring writer who's coming in bright-eyed into your classroom, is like, oh, I'm going to learn to write about these Pepsi or Coca-Cola or maybe maybe learn how to write for fashion. Yeah. The first thing you sort of put in their face is you will learn every bloody thing about this vacuum cleaner. Yeah. And it's hard because, well, you might think, oh, because I go to BU or because I'm in liberal arts, I must be open-minded. You're not. You're so <laughs> close-minded to the idea. You literally look at it with so much, like almost like resentment, like, oh my God. Why is Professor Dowding make us, making us do uh -huh. this? Yeah. But <clears throat> the fascinating insight that I got out of it was also that being a voracious reader also means that reading stuff that you might necessarily not like. Yeah. Or stuff that you have sure. nothing to do with. Yeah. Because it helps broaden your perspective. I say, I tell my students, and, and I get, look, I get pushback on the vacuum, let's, let's be honest. <laughs> the ElectroZoom XL is. is Oh my is God. my favorite of all time, and it always will be. The best, the first, or the only. The first best, still... first best only. What's first best? Do you remember your first best only? Um, oh, you will be a hero if you can trot this one out. Uh, what is it? The, the first vacuum cleaner that... Uh, it was the first. I know that. Uh, it was. <laughs> it was. The first, or maybe it was the only. I don't know. Do you, do you remember all the first best only? Uh, it was the first industrial strength consumer vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it all comes... If you, for those of you who can't see, unfortunately, he's just thrown his head back in disgust and, and humor at the same time, because when it comes back to you, it's like, you know, PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what my duty is anymore. <laughs> I don't know who I am. <laughs> no, but, um, but yeah, you were talking about how, uh, wait, I forgot. No, no we, were, we were saying, you know, our students don't necessarily really love the mm -hmm. idea of a vacuum, and it always... Uh, spurs me to point out to them but guys you know when you go to work at that ad agency it's not going to always be the sneaker account or the pizza account you yeah. know you're going to have and frankly I, it it's always sounds like i'm tooting my own horn or you know sort of rationalizing this but i hear from my students afterward you know mm -hmm. years later and they'll say yeah you know the vacuum's not that bad you know that, uh, i wish i could work on a vacuum right now you know i'm working wow. on some industrial tubing account or something you know wow. so um you know a consumer vacuum is a pretty good account it's mm -hmm. not bad um, but like you say, when it's, you know, sophomores coming in here thinking it's going to yeah. just be, you know, oh, I'm going to work on the Ben and Jerry's and I'm going to yeah. work. It's like, well, you know, not always, you know, so it's a bit of a shock. to them. I, I, That's what I think. Um, my own 
limited interpretation of writing is it's a lot about sacrifice. It's a lot about sacrificing stuff. You're, you're putting your voice aside mm. and adopting somebody else's, mm. and you're going to get paid to do that. You know, it's yeah. not it's not without compensation. You're yeah. you're doing that because they're paying you to do that, and because you do it yeah. well, and and you say the things that they want to say in in memorable and engaging ways. Yeah, I mean. It's funny that you say that because I do want to talk to you about, you know, you, I mean, you had a, you still have a pretty, you know, industrious freelance career and you yes. worked on uh, companies like, you know, Sun Microsystems yeah. and uh, some fintech companies as well as some companies in, um, what is it, medicine? And sure. So yeah. since you're working for so many different companies and you're just one person, right? Yeah. How do you manage understanding or sort of keeping in your head? well, I have to write this about this company or yeah. the press release for this is that. How do you manage all of that? Yeah, you know, it, it's tough. You, you see a big list of clients on my website. But Super it, big, yeah. But yeah, but they're not all active, obviously. You know, hmm. So you know, some will just go away for a while. Or sometimes they just go away permanently because generally I work on a project basis. So yeah. they've got something they work you know, need me to work on. I do. And maybe they've got something two months later. Maybe they got something uh, two weeks later. Maybe they got hmm. something two years later. Hmm. Uh, it, it just varies. Um, and... I, that is one of the, the the challenges is trying to figure out you know what's the next priority you know how do I keep all these people happy and manage the deadlines and yeah. sort of juggle things and it's time management by the way a great skill for a college student to learn as well with their different classes it's the same sort of thing it, yeah. it's not it's not dissimilar so yeah. it, I, it, I I didn't learn that in your class <laughs> I, I'll tell that to you for a fact because I have. I have such shame around the fact that I would always email you extension, extension, oh, yeah. extension, extension. For the record, he was never granted an extension. I want to make that clear. Yes, <laughs> never. It's well, because here's the thing. It's like you think you can get away. You yeah. think that you can exploit the system, but it's it's just not practical. It's unrelenting. It's You're not learning how to function in the real world yeah. when you're saying, well, Oh, because I'm a softy little baby. I yeah. couldn't. I couldn't focus because I got sick. It's like, yeah. oh well, you know, I empathize with you, yeah. Number. Take this extension. It's yeah. like, no. Finally, I'm proud to announce, Professor Dowding, that I have not asked for a single extension. Might this be the most valuable. Might be the most valuable lesson you took away. Then you know. I mean, I don't know, but you can't go to your client and say, "Hey, you know, I really wasn't feeling good yesterday." Mm. You know, it's like, you know, suck it up, Buttercup. Let's go. Yeah. You got, still, the world's still moving. Yeah. Yeah, and that, and and um, so interestingly, so. People are coming in and people want to write and stuff. Mm. What's the hardest truth that you've had to absorb about writing? You know, I, I don't know if I can. Let me answer it slightly differently, which okay. is, you know, um, it, it's counter to a lot of things they've learned. Like they've learned to pad things and, exp you know, me to work. I got to add some more things in here to get to this 20 pages or whatever. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, you know, mm. people want shorter lengths. Mm. But it, it's it's more of a case of, you know, to get that, you want something short and tight, and it actually takes longer amounts of time yeah. to write shorter documents. Yeah. And you know, it, it's the that Mark Twain line. You know, uh, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. You know, <laughs> it, it, so in it, it, so it, it requires a commitment to the craft, hmm. and and it's not like riding a bicycle. It's hmm. not like uh, you know something you can just pick up that you haven't done in a while. It's it's like being a musician it's like yeah. being an athlete it, it requires you to practice the right way yeah. every day and i think you know that's how you keep your chops if you're a musician you know it's how you constantly stay in tune because you're doing it every day you're doing the, the right way every day mm. so it, it becomes that that principle of do it mm. do it right and do it right now 
And when, wow. And when you get to that level, you're, Let, you're Let's try to make a clip of that and put it on Instagram so we'll, we'll get a lot of likes for that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's not accompanied by my photo, I think you probably will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but one of the things that you uh, sort of said in the notes was yeah. you can be smart and not a good writer. Yeah. But I think that's true. you can be a good writer without being smart. Could you talk more about that? Well, you know, it, it's, it's funny because I know a lot of super smart people. They're just not great writers. But that is not to diminish their intelligence at all. In fact, that's sort of the basis of my freelance practice. I work with smart people who are not really good at writing. Hmm. Thank God they're there. They, they, they help me feed myself, you know. Um, but I, I also would tell you, if you're a great writer, I know immediately that you are smart. Because, I, and I'm not saying this out of some sort of self-love of, you know, how great, I, you know, or smarter I am or whatever. Yeah. But if you can write well, then you have to be smart because you can't write well unless you're smart, unless you're really, you know, uh, focused and you're you're reading stuff and you're retaining things and you're able to, you know, synthesize different data points. Mm -hmm. um, it, that just doesn't happen. Um, so one one thing that I think is so interesting, and, and this is the sort of perception that I came up with, came in with to your class was, well, okay, well, Professor Dowding is a relatively is relatively elder to me. So how is he going to teach me about contemporary writing or mm -hmm. contemporary social media writing or yeah. social media copywriting? Sure. But you have the most active, most, uh, what's the right word? Um, the most active Twitter account <laughs> as as compared to all my contemporaries. Right? You're on there all the time. Yeah. You're putting out your opinions. So, you know, how, like, why did you decide that, that that was something that was important? Not because the culture was saying it, but like, how did you adapt to that from being a traditional writer? It's a great question. Um, you know, it's funny because I, I appreciate those comments. I don't think I, I, I think I could be much more active on Twitter than I am. But, you know, it, it Facebook? Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. No. I, as I joke, I go on Facebook religiously every year, <laughs> you know, <laughs> once a year. To, to do the, to thank you for those birthday wishes, yeah. you know, and, and from people I don't even know. And yeah. um, I, I, I think I have an Instagram account. I've never posted on Instagram. But, but Twitter to me is just kind of like that sort of fits my style, my preferences, the things mm. I like. You know, I can scroll through it fast and get updates on what's going on in the world. I can mm. occasionally chip in with a comment or two and, yeah. and or retweet. And that to me is it's the right pace and tone for, for what I prefer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what? When it is in that mode, it, you know, the writing for it comes naturally. I sort of observe how people are using that. And what did you think when uh, they doubled the, the character limit from 140 to 280? Did, did you, did I that really hit unaware. your radar? See, yeah. I, see um, listeners, this is a classic example of when you think you're a smart millennial and then you get <laughs> fooled because I did not know about that. Yeah, that happened a while ago, though. It's at, it's, so it's not recent news. Uh, okay. But, you know, it's... They doubled their word, you know, footprint. Well, I think it's interesting that Twitter is basically an embodiment of your philosophy to writing, which is like you only have 140 characters. Yeah. So it better be good. Yeah. Keep it, <laughs> so, keep it short, keep it sweet, keep it clear. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I didn't think much of it. I don't actually actively use Twitter because that's, I, for me, my, my, my poison or my way of, you know, communicating is Instagram because I've, yeah. been, right. I've, been, I've been really using um video content and, mm -hmm. and long copy and short copy and yep. stories and and content that sort of flashes in front of your eyes it's it's clickbaity yeah like those like those email headlines that you taught us in class right because <laughs> yeah. if you if you just say hey here's an offer for you and we would love to give you this it's like the 
the the headline of the email is going to go in dot 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 because you yeah. can't even read it. Yeah. Worse is Urban Outfitters sends me an email and it says, "Hey, here's the fifty dollars we owe you." Yeah. You open the email. How, how you're not going to open that, right? Yeah, yeah. You open the email. It's an offer. Yeah. For oh, you can actually get a discount if you do this thing, but they made you open it. Yeah. So that's so. Um, my question then to you is, um, you talk a lot about you know precision writing and writing that sort of appeals to people and is engaging and yeah. is is pleasant. What are like some of the ways in which people can be better writers like that? Or maybe I guess the question is, how can we write like the people who did that in Urban Outfitters? Because that was something that. Well, I think that's that's. You know that that email you described just sounds like a, a lot of talent happening right there. That's a really clever way, and I think a lot of the the the, the effective things that you see. Let, let, let's just say marketing emails, right? Mm. They're just so uh, relentlessly tested. Mm. You know, these guys are you know doing these A B splits of this headline versus this. Uh, sorry, this subject line versus this subject line, and testing them and seeing what draws a statistically significant greater number of clicks, and so then they say, okay, let's 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 put dollar let's put dollar figures in the headline, or mm. you know, so all of these things just get tested time after time. So they you know they're applying a lot of science to this. Mm. I mean, sort of science, right? Um, to see what is going to be the, the the thing that draws the clicks. And I think that's that that's what these companies are striving to do is just eke yeah. out one little more advantage, one you know one two clicks more, whatever it takes. I want to ask you the universal question that yeah. I'm sure anyone who's an aspiring writer is thinking about right now. Okay. I want to say these things, but I'm stuck. I have a writer's block. What do I do? Yeah, we, we don't even like to say those two words. You know, WB. We oh, just we sorry. don't. Are they, even... are they condemned? I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. Sorry, my speech was so problematic. I apologize. You you, you never let that word in the phrase into the room, right? Um, <laughs> but you know, it does it happen? Sure. And I think what characterizes it is the writer is trying to solve the entire problem at once and is it gets overwhelmed by it like I've got to write a news release oh my gosh well no just say I got to write a headline let's just start there um, so my solution to that problem is just chip away at it even if you have to go away like mm. if you're sitting there and you're blocked don't sit there any longer it's not going to suddenly happen I don't think in many cases the ways I like to go, chip at it, put something down and come back later, you know, even if it's an hour later, come back mm -hmm. and look at it again. Um, and then when you're working on this, throw things up on the screen, you know, just unfinished thoughts, just, all right, I need a quote here. I'm gonna know I'm gonna three bullets. I'll put bullets here. Let me look on my uh, sources and, okay, I wanna get this fact in there. This mm -hmm. this quote is gonna go here, you know. Just throw things up there as raw materials. Yeah. You know, Lego bricks, a pile of Lego bricks. You just figure out what bricks you want. Then you worry about assembling them and, you know, making your sentences clean and, and tight. But just organically grow it, you know, bit by bit and stop looking at the entire piece. Put your head down and focus on this one section. Hmm. You know, get the first phrase, then get the first sentence. And that's all. Don't try and solve the whole thing at once. Yeah. One of the things that really helped me in organizing my thoughts and, you know, uh, combating or sort of taking on these longer writing assignments yeah. was the art of free writing. Oh, which, sure. Which means, for listeners who don't know, is whatever you want to, whatever you think about it, whatever the length is, you just keep writing relentlessly without judging yourself. And then you look back at it, it's like, okay, well, it's it's not exactly what I expected, but here's five or six insights that I can then use to construct 
a smaller argument or like uh, make it more effective, right? That that discipline works really well if you're willing to do that second part. If you're mm-hmm. willing and have the the, I don't know, the the fortitude to relentlessly hack apart yeah. what you've written and say, all right, I need to get rid of eighty percent of this, mm-hmm. but I'll take the top twenty percent here and, and use that. And that's a great way. Now it's a it's a pretty long way around the barn. Like you've mm-hmm. got to. You got to write a lot of stuff that is never going to see the light of day. Yeah. Uh, and if, for some of us, that's, you know, a real difficult sort of thing to get over. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest misconceptions about writing are include, oh, writers just sit down, write the words, and voila. Yeah. It just happens. It just the happens. magic enters the room. <laughs> yeah. I've, I read this book, uh, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. Okay. It's like a pretty famous writing book, and she talks about, well, you, you think that. I don't have bad days. Like there's a looming sense of anxiety at all times because I have to like write that bloody thing. And people think, oh, Anne, that was perfect. It must have been so easy for you. It's like, you don't know. I had to bring in demons inside my head and yeah. have them, you know, wreck my whole psyche and then build it up again so it, I could write that. It, it, it can be painful. You don't remember him. He was a great professor here. His name was Jack Falla. Okay. And I haven't... He, he uh, unfortunately passed away about, I think, 11 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago, and mm. he wrote a couple of books. Uh, he lived out in Natick, and he taught sports journalism here. Mm. And so he was uh, a big hockey fanatic. Mm. And he wrote a book, uh, I think it was called Home Ice, and then he wrote a, a second one, a sequel called Open Ice. Mm. And I was talking to him one day about it in email, actually exchanging emails, asking him how the writing process was going. And he said, I'm... He said, I'm pounding it out through the tackles, which is a, a football analogy, you know, where you're just grinding it out. Yeah. He said he was writing maybe 200 words a day. And and it's just like, just really depressed for him. And, you know, hearing that yeah. stat, just such a low, low. Well, then, you know, you read the books and they're just fantastic, fantastic essays about hockey. And you just, yeah. wow, okay, well, you know, it was worth the effort because the result was just so stellar. One of the things you talk about in your class is finding your voice. You yeah. know, finding your writing voice. Yeah. And that to me seemed like a paradox at first. Well, because I'm writing for this brand, what's my voice? Yeah. But it's like, well, then in the arts review, it became slightly more clear. It's like, yeah. what do you mean when you say you find your voice? So, I mean, could you talk more about that? Sure. I mean, the arts review is one of those great places where you do get to sort of really develop your own voice. And mm. it comes early in my semester anyways. Mm. So it, in some ways that's unfortunate, but it's sort of a re- the reality of what we need. But, you know, you want to... Find your particular way of saying it. it's like cooking. Mm. You know, everybody. You know, anybody can cook chicken parm, I guess. But you know, everybody does it differently. You, this is how I do it. I, mm. I melt the cheese first before whatever. You know. Yeah. Um. So you want to find your own style and and make it your own. And mm. some of that, by the way, still comes from reading. You know, yeah. reading and absorbing other people's styles and sort of. I like the way they did that. I like the way she did that. You know, that sort of approach uh, is essential. Um. But getting the right voice even for somebody else, that's that's a real trick. And so you're adopting the brand's voice and you're going to do it, frankly, by reading a lot of their previous materials and mm. sort of watching their ads and, and reading their ads and their news releases and blog posts, whatever. But you sort of get what their tone, their attitude is, their their manner of, of communicating. Mm. And then you've got to sort of imitate it yeah. in, in new ways. And there's a lot of imitation, but... Um, not just solely imitating, but innovating as well. Yeah, that's what this. That's what. That's where the phrase "steal like an artist" comes from. You exactly. Know? Exactly. Um, well, Chris, because um, 
I used to I used to place a lot of faith in Hunter S. Thompson, but then yeah. you know I grew up and I was yeah. like, oh, this guy's <laughs> he's crazy. <laughs> he's crazy too much. But one thing one thing that is still admirable about him is he said he learned how to write by rewriting The Great Gatsby fifty times. Oh, I never knew that. That's and uh, Gatsby is probably my favorite novel. Right. So, so it's like that's great. You can see that okay, maybe he has no talent, but it's like if I just rewrite this whole novel, what I'm basically doing is I'm imprinting the words, the ideas, the theme in my head. And making it come out your own way. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Fun. So, I mean, I was fascinated by that and I started doing that with a couple of books and I yeah. could see that, okay, well, my, my speaking style is is more scientific and prosaic. Yeah. It comes from the books I've read and tried right. to rewrite again right. and again. It's who you are. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a fantastic practice, yeah. but, you know, considering that we do have to stop in about, like, exactly five minutes, I just want to <laughs> okay. pick your brain on... You're you're this for, uh, fork in your life, right? Mm -hmm. um, they often say the writer's life is one of solitude and starvation. <laughs> and here you are sitting with us, you know, looking fantastic, reasonably well fed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and you know, you're glowing, and all, all things are good. So yeah, thanks. How have you been able to, you know, merge the two elements of the practicality mm -hmm. of feeding yourself and your life, <laughs> but then also taking on this chaotic sometimes not that rewarding endeavor of writing well it, it, and there's it there's i guess the other dimension which is also teaching as well oh right? yeah so right, think so right. think about that way you know it's funny because when i started my writing practice it was 1995 hmm. the internet was around but it wasn't you know too common and it, it was just really the right time to start a business where you could work out of your house like working from home was kind of an exotic concept then hmm. and people would say to me Geez, Michael, you work from your house. And I'm like, yeah. Like, well, where do you work? I'm like, well, we built an office over the garage. I work from. Oh, you did. And, and then they confessed to me. You know, if I worked for myself from home, I'd probably just sit and watch MTV and eat all day, and I would never get anything done. And I, what I found, was the exact opposite. Like, the work. I don't want to say it became an addiction, but mm. it became a very strong obsession. Like, I got to get stuff done. I got to mm. get up there. I got to work. I got to. And it was. You know, people would say, how do you do that? I'm like, well, do you like to eat? Because like, I got a couple <laughs> kids, man, and they're pretty pre they're pretty committed to the whole eating idea. So I got to have some cash coming in here. So, you know, I, it, it was never a question of, you know, oh, this is going to make me lazy. It was the exact opposite. I was like, I need to take some time away. got to step yeah. away. And, and what was great, too, is that at, at the same time I started this teaching gig, yeah. um, it was part time. It was, you know, one or two nights a, a, a week. Um and but it was just the perfect balance for this solitary life of writing. Hmm. And then, you know, as I would say, you know, at four o'clock, I've got a reason to shower and shave and put on a necktie and go talk to some people. So yeah. it was a great counterbalance to the, the solitary, the solitude of writing. And then this this very social aspect of talking about writing with yeah. a bunch of young people. It was, it was a great balance. I, I was always happy to have that fortune. Well, I, what I get from that is if a writer is alone without a family and just by himself he needs to find something that gives his life meaning he yeah. needs to find something that he can do as a day job or he needs to find yeah. something you can't be otherwise you're ted kaczynski or something yeah yeah, yeah. Right. he needs to build a family because yeah. then it's like well then i have a reason to do this thing yeah you know i can't yeah. just do it as a passing fancy it's right like, i love to speak about things but i don't have any reason see i i've started to write a, a novel i started oh, ten, oh wow 10 years ago all right mm -hmm. so it's it's still not done and it's that same sort of thing as like a you know, it has to have a reason to happen. And it's like, yeah. I'm interested in it. I love it. It's a great experience. Uh, but, you know, it 
at the end of the day, there are other competing priorities that hmm. fall a little higher on the list. So, But it's that same thing. It has to have a reason to be. Hell yeah. yeah. Well, Professor Doubting, this has been fantastic. Thanks. You, I've had thank a blast. You. Thank you for being my first premier guest. I think when I put it out, um, some sort of garlands and flowers are going to come to my house. <laughs> I'm a season premiere. I'm, I'm yeah, just going to take yeah. that and dine out on that tonight, you know? My, my parents are going <laughs> to probably, you know, run a parade in the city, and I think my dad is going to get a new haircut. I think life is going to change. I might meet God tonight, so yeah, I don't exactly. know. You know. Things are looking pretty good. But uh, thank you so much Pleasure for was being all mine. here. Thank um, you. Thanks for having me. This is me. Michael Louding, my professor and my greatest writing teacher that I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was the Vitruvian Man podcast. Before we exit, I do want to ask you, Here it comes. where can people find you? Oh, well, that's an easy question. Okay. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at MGDoubting. Okay. We'll um, put that my, up on the screen. My uh, website is uh, www.wordscape.com. Mm. There's no L in there. It's words and cape. Wordscape. Oh, yeah. And then uh, my email. Sure. MDoubting at BU.edu. There's, you're going to have some stalkers. Drop my line. Drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. Awesome, awesome. So if you have any, um, sh- if you, like, uh, if you have any sort of, if you need help with writing, if you want to reach out, this is the great man that taught me how to write and <laughs> murder my darlings, which I so <laughs> fancily loved. So this was uh, a conversation with Michael Dowding, and uh, I'll try to see you next week. Thank Th- you so much. Thanks, Vinamri. Thank you. Hell yeah. Yeah. Good times. <laughs>